Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. Brand new book of the Bible. We're jumping into the New Testament book of Jude. If you're new, let me just start by explaining to you what we believe about the Bible. It is the word of God. If you want to get a word from God, you need to open the word of God. It's the only perfect thing on earth. And the Bible is the most incredible book because it's the only book that when you open it, it doesn't just allow you to read it. It reads you. In addition, it's the only book that when you open it, the author meets with you to help you learn what he inspired in those divine pages. In addition, the Bible isn't a book that just tells us what used to happen, but it tells us what always happens. Because the Bible is not old, it's eternal, so it's always timely. Number three, my hope, prayer, and goal for you is that you would learn to look not just at the word, but through the word into the world. We wanna look at culture and entertainment and sexuality and spirituality in light of God's word and through the lens of God's perfect word. So what we're going to do, we're going to start today a five-week series in the book of Jude. It's a small book in the New Testament. And let me say that I have uh, titled this sermon, Are You a Real Christian? Hold that thought until the end. We're gonna cover two verses in an hour or more. And, 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 and as we study, I, I titled this entire series, uh, Black and White in a Rainbow World. And here's the reason. The two most famous or infamous symbols and icons in our world are those two, the cross and the rainbow. That ultimately in the church, our symbol, our icon is the cross. In the world, it is the rainbow. These represent two ideologies, two worldviews, two kings and kingdoms, two spirits at work in our world. Let me start with the cross. And when I speak of the cross, I'm of course speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what we hear in the New Testament is that the cross is the symbol of our faith. Paul says this in Galatians 6:14: far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord. As Christians, we don't boast about who we are, but who Jesus is. And we don't boast about what we've done, but we boast about what he has done. We boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I the world. The cross reminds us that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ is our savior. And it was on the cross that our great God and savior who entered into human history after living without any sin, substituted himself and suffered and died on a cross in our place for our sins so that the wrath of God could be diverted from us and the love of God could be given to us. The result is when we talk of the cross, we talk of that moment where the greatest love in the history of the world was demonstrated where our God, Jesus Christ saved sinners and God's people say, amen. That's what we believe. The early church had to determine and decide what their icon or symbol of our faith would be. They considered many things, but they finally determined that the best would be the cross. So beginning with the early church father Tertullian, around the second century, Christians began making the sign of the cross. We began wearing the cross. Artwork, it demonstrated the cross. Churches had atop them the cross. Within the church of Jesus Christ, the most significant symbol and icon on the earth today is the cross. Once you leave the church, the most powerful iconic symbol in our culture is the rainbow, is the rainbow. 
It's interesting because the rainbow belongs to God. And like everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. The rainbow appears perhaps most famously in the Old Testament book of Genesis during the days of Noah. And Jesus says that as we enter into the last days, they are like the days of Noah. We are living in days like the days of Noah. Everyone is just eating and drinking and rebelling and carousing, not understanding that judgment is coming. And in the days of Noah, God flooded the earth and what God ultimately did, he killed or put to death all of those who were sinners. And then he sent a rainbow in the sky and he did so to declare that he was entering into an eternal covenant of peace with planet earth and with the sinners therein. We read this in Genesis 9, 13. God says, I have set my bow in the cloud, a sign of the covenant. In our day, we tend to carry a firearm, or at least we do in Arizona and at Trinity Church. Um, we believe that bad guys are real and they won't stop themselves and so we'll help them. Nonetheless, in our day, we tend to carry guns. In their day, soldiers carried bows and arrows. That was their weapon of choice. And so what would happen is when a war was concluded, the soldier would come home and to denote that peacetime had come, they would go into their living room, perhaps above their mantle, and they would literally hang up their bow. And it was their way of saying war has ended and peace has come. When God put his rainbow in the sky, it was God's way of saying, I'm not going to flood the earth as I did in the days of Noah. There's gonna be mercy, grace, patience for people, even those who are in sinful rebellion. What Satan and sinners then decided is, if God is not going to deal with us, then we are going to mock him. We're going to sin and rebel against him. And we are going to presume on the grace of God. There's another place that the rainbow appears, not just in the first book of the Bible, but in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it says this about our great God and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that right now he is alive and well. And you need to know this, Jesus Christ is alive and well. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That ultimately everyone has their word, but he gets the last word. And right now in the unseen realm, Jesus is seated upon his throne and he is being worshiped by departed saints and by divine beings. And what it says in Revelation 4, 3 is this, around Jesus' throne is a rainbow. Right now, Jesus is being worshiped in the environment of a rainbow. Satan has seen that rainbow. He lived in the presence of God before he rebelled against God, according to Revelation 12, lost the war in heaven and was cast down to the earth. He's seen that rainbow. On a few occasions, he's been permitted into the throne room presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the days of Job, for example, Satan was permitted into Jesus' presence. He would have seen the rainbow. And Satan is so covetous of the rainbow that he has decided that though he cannot sit on a throne in heaven surrounded by a rainbow, that he would sit on a throne on earth and be surrounded by a rainbow and worshiped by people who are committed to his kingdom as a counterfeit of Jesus Christ. And so today, the rainbow is denoted as that which is demonic and antichrist. The current rainbow flag that flies continuously, but especially during Pride Month, it was originally created in 1978 by a drag queen artist in New York, of course. <laughs> the various colors represented various things. And so I'll explain them to you. 
If you look at the rainbow flag, here's what they represent. The red is for life. The pink is for unbridled sex and gender can confusion and no limits to human indecency. Yellow is for the sun. Green is for the environment, paganism, pantheism, panentheism, radical environmentalism. Turquoise is for art and creativity. Violet is for the spirit or the demonic realm. In addition, orange is for healing because the promise is if all of these come together, you'll be a healthy person. And then lastly, indigo is the color of harmony. And the goal of the rainbow flag is to integrate all these colors. And I would submit to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is pure and it's clean. It tells us that we are sinners and that he is our savior. And that this is refreshing and life-giving. That is the theology of the cross. Let's just see what happens when we do exactly what the rainbow flag tells us to do. And that is integration and syncretism and combining spirituality and sexuality and demonism and environmentalism and rebellion into one consistent summary. And here's what we get. We get darkness. Friends, this is not progress, this is darkness. This is not progress, this is darkness. And what we're left with today is a choice. Either the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ or the counterfeit rebellion that is an apostasy that has taken over an entire generation, including of young Christians on planet Earth. That's where we find ourselves. That's helpful, that's not. Now, Christianity is dualistic in its thinking. Rainbow thinking is pluralistic. There is no such thing as male, female, God, Satan, truth, lies, life, death. Everything is on a spectrum. The theology of the Bible, it is black and white, meaning it is binary. Let me just introduce you to the book of Jude. And it gives throughout the book of Jude these binary categories of black and white. There's God versus the devil. You can read all of this in the book for yourself. There's angels and demons, not just spirits. There's the church and the world, and there should be a clear division and separation between the two. There are people with the Holy Spirit and people without the Holy Spirit. There are saints or God's beloved children versus the ungodly. There is love of God versus blaspheme of God, and there is salvation versus condemnation. Let me now give you the, uh, the theme of Jude. Why did he write this letter and what is his intent? Well, thankfully he tells us quite clearly, and that is that you and I need to learn to fight for the faith. Jude chapter three says of this, beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. That's the word that is the theme of the book, contend. For the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. First thing I wanna say is this, Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ are what we would call the theology of the cross, that we are saved by Jesus, that we are saved from Jesus, that we are saved for Jesus, and that ultimately Jesus Christ alone is the hope of planet Earth. And contending for the gospel that was once for all delivered means it doesn't change. This is where progressivism is a demonic lie. God doesn't need to improve his message because he got it right the first time. 
Unlike those of us who think that there needs to be progress, there doesn't need to be progress, there needs to be obedience to perfection, and that is the word of God. And so the theme here, contending, it is a military word. One Bible commentary says it this way, and I quote, in the original Greek language, the word contend was used to describe a general giving orders to the army, hence the atmosphere of this letter is military. It's combat language. Contend, it's a fight. And the point is this, the church doesn't pick the fight, but we will have the fight. And the world can believe whatever it wants to believe, but the church believes some things that are quite different. The world can follow the spirit of the age, but we will follow the spirit of God. This is the house of the Lord. You are the people of the Lord. This place belongs exclusively to our God and savior, Jesus Christ. And we are exclusively under the authority of his word. Now, others may not believe that, but that's who we are and that's what we believe. And there is a battle to be had for the church to remain pure in an age of confusion and compromise. Now, a couple of things I wanna say about this contending. People don't change the gospel. The gospel changes people. And the gospel is the good news of the message that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ is our savior. And so ultimately for us, we assume that when we disagree with the word of God, we do not change the word of God. We invite the spirit of God to change us, to conform to the word of God. That's what we believe. Number two, when you come into church, you're going to worship. When you're leaving the church, you're going to war. The backdrop here for Jude, spiritual warfare. And then number three, Christians are to fight, not because we hate people, but because we love people. And we hate the demonic forces that have taken them captive to destroy them. Jesus says, I came to set captives free. The Bible says that our war is not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits. What it's saying is we don't hate people, we love people, and we hate those spirits who oppress and confuse and lie to and destroy people whom God loves. So to tell people that they are a sinner is not being unloving, it's actually the most loving. Let me say this, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, you're the biggest problem in your life. You are. You're the greatest enemy you have, okay? How do I know that? There's been a lot of people that have hurt you, but they've come and gone. You're the only constant variable. You need to know that you are the problem, not the solution. You need to know that you are the one to be delivered, not the one who is the savior doing the delivering. And we don't tell people that they are sinners and need a savior because we hate them, but because we love them, because they're sinners and they need a savior. Here's my question to you. If Christians are called to contend, where's your war? Where's your war? And as God's people, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For some of you, I want you to read Jude thinking in terms of where your front line of this battle is. For some of you, it's at your house. You're married to an unbeliever. You're like, I'm trying to love Jesus. My spouse doesn't. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to bring the presence of God into a place where, where my spouse doesn't want to be in God's presence. For some of you, it's with your children. They've gone apostate. They become confused. Maybe they have trauma. Maybe they have gender dysphoria and sexual confusion. 
And maybe you're struggling to, to love them and to lead them into the fullness that God has for them. And that's where your war is. For some of you, it's technology and it's social media and it's friends that seem to be just invading your home and educating and brainwashing your children, which happens first and foremost at the government schools. They're not public schools, they're government schools. And for some of you, your place of war, the front line of your battle, it's at work. You show up and everything they're telling you in your training on how to be a good employee makes you a bad Christian. You gotta figure out people's pronouns and identities and tolerance and diversity and everybody's welcome except for Jesus and everything's welcome except for the Bible. You're trying to figure out how to not lose your job and not dishonor your Lord. For some of you, you're university students and every day you go to campus, you're just walking into enemy territory. You know that if you tell them what you believe, you're going to get a worse grade. You know you're not gonna get a promotion at work if you really do come out of the closet as a true believer in Jesus Christ. That's the only closet that everyone's supposed to stay in, apparently. Many of you are sensing this and now the war has come everywhere. Walk into Target, walk out of Target. You know, it's everywhere. Where's your war? As you read Jude, think of it as orders from headquarters. Think of it as God himself, as commander in chief, giving you clear directives how to fight the good fight of faith, how to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, how to contend for the faith. Okay, that was my introduction. Let's get into the book of Jude, okay? Let's get into the book of Jude. We'll just do one verse and see how that goes. Jude one, Jude one. Jude, he's the author of the book. We're gonna talk about Jude and Jesus, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Some letters in the New Testament, the New Testament is largely letters from apostolic leaders writing to local churches. And oftentimes they will give you a formal title like apostle. Here, he just says servant, it's very humble. Let me say this, if a man who writes a book of the Bible is happy to be a servant, we should all be happy to be a servant. We should be. That our God didn't come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus is a servant. So in this house and in God's kingdom, serving is something that we are honored to do. It's something that we get to do, not something that we have to do. In addition, he tells us who his brother is, but what's curious, he only mentions one brother. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm James's brother. He has another brother named Jesus. I would have started with that. I'll just be honest. Like if Jesus was my brother, I'd let people know. Right? Yeah, you may have heard of my brother, Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I'd have merch and books and I would be uh, doing a lot of social media. Here's me and Jesus' kids. Here's me and Jesus in Little League. I'd be getting my money's worth. And what he does, he doesn't tell us that Jesus is his brother. He tells us that Jesus is his Lord, his Lord. See, he now knows that his brother is his God. This is shocking. And, and he says that Jesus is the Christ. That means the anointed Holy Spirit chosen savior of the world. And 
And here's the good news. Jude is a man who accepts his God-given place, okay? His more famous brother is a guy named James, and his way more famous brother is Jesus. Okay, let's just be honest. How many of you grew up in a house and you didn't like where you were and you're like, I wish I had their looks, I wish I had their musical ability, I wish I had their athletic ability, I wish I had their, their, their intelligence and their IQ, and you don't like where you're at in the family. Talk about being insecure. Your big brother's Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that? It sounds fun until you really think about it. I mean, you're fighting, mom comes in, just whoops you, doesn't even ask what happened. You know, obviously it's Jude's fault, you know? And you can never blame anything on your brother. Oh, I think Jesus did it. Well, I'm sure he didn't, you know? <laughs> and so what we see here is that Jesus is Lord God's savior. James is a more famous brother. Jude is lesser known, but he's happy to just be who God made him to be and do what God called him to do. There's a contentment and a humility about him. How many of you grew up Catholic? Catholic? Um, how many of you right now, this feels weird, just being in a church where it's like this, amen? Okay, I'll make you feel better. Howdy, my name is Father Mark. Okay, so, um, so if you grew up Catholic, if you grew, and I grew up Catholic, um, if you grew up Catholic, you were told that Mary, Jesus' mother, was semper virgo, that's the Latin for ever virgin. We're like, Mary died a virgin. And, and I remember as a kid just going, poor Joseph. Like, you know, like poor, like, I mean, probably shouldn't say this, but you know, but I'm gonna say it. It's, it's awesome to marry a virgin. It is not awesome to be married to a virgin. You see what I'm saying? Right, right, right. And so what they said was, Mary and Joseph got married and they never consummated their marriage, which wouldn't make it a marriage. It would make it a really weird roommate situation. <laughs> Jesus, mom and dad didn't consummate their marriage until after he was born. They had a normal healthy marriage, apparently didn't fight much because they had a lot of kids. I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter 13, verses 55, 56. So Jesus is there and everybody's hearing him preach. He's like, I came down from heaven. I'm God, I'm sinless. I'm gonna raise from the dead. And they're like, what? Is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And there's multiple Judases in the New Testament. It's not Judas Iscariot. Though this brother was really bummed. It's like, you're Jesus' brother. What's your name? Judas. Oh, goes, I'm not that Judas. I'm the other Judas. <laughs> yeah. And are not all his sisters, that's multiple, plural sisters with us. So they've got a large family. After Jesus is born, his mother and father consummate their covenant and they have at least four sons and multiple daughters, plus Jesus' family of at least seven kids. Right? So this is one of those big van families. That's Jesus' family. And so what we see here as well is that they didn't believe in the context here in Matthew, 
When Jesus was saying he was God, what do you think his family thought? He's crazy. Right? Every, let me just say this. Every family has one person who's crazy. Right? Some of you are like, I don't know who that is. I hate to break it to you, I think it's you. you know? So every family's got one person that's crazy and they think Jesus is crazy. So they try to bring him home. Jesus, no more talking about you know, being God, come down from heaven to raise from the dead. Why don't you just, just, just come home? After Jesus died and rose from the dead, his whole family began to worship him as God. I'll prove it to you. Acts chapter one, verse 14. Here's the gathering of the early church following the resurrection of Jesus, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus' mother and his brothers are all part of the early church worshiping her son, their half brother. Jesus didn't have an earthly father, but his brothers did. So they're half brothers technically. They're worshiping their brother as God. And here's what's incredibly insightful. These are devout Jewish people. The first two of the 10 commandments that they would have memorized since the crib was there's only one God and you worship him alone. You don't just pick another God. And Jesus said he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And when Jesus rose from the dead, they believed that he was God. How many of you find that a strong argument that Jesus is God? His devout Jewish mother joins the church, prays to him, sings to him, worships him. And here's bonus round, his brothers. How many of you, if you started a religion, your brothers would not join? Right? He's the devil, I, I, he's on the other team. They're like, you know what? He was sinless and perfect. If anybody knows you're evil, it's your brother, right? Do you know what the difference is between a terrorist and a brother? Size, that's the only difference. If anyone knew he was not perfect, it was his mom and his brothers, but they worshiped him as God. And let me just talk a little bit about Jesus' family. And it's a, it's a ministry family. That's why I love it so much. Uh, this is a summary from a book I wrote called Spirit-Filled Jesus. But when we read the Bible, you need to know that a lot of what we read was Jude's family. So there's a priest named Zachariah. His wife's name is Elizabeth. Those were Jude's relatives like his aunt and uncle. They had a kid named John the Baptizer. He, he's like, comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's wearing camel's hair. He eats bugs and honey. He's got, a, you know, a rope for a, a belt. I mean, this, this guy's rural, you know? People in Jerome are like, I don't know. You know, he's very rural. He's a tough guy and a man's man. That's Jesus, basically his cousin, who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. We read about Joseph, that was Jesus' adoptive father. He wasn't Jesus' biological father, but he was Jesus' adoptive father. For those of you who have adopted children, you're doing what Joseph did for Jesus. And I always say this to the single men, if you're a single man, don't overlook the single mothers. Technically in their day, Mary was a virgin, betrothed or engaged to be married, and then she became pregnant, technically, categorically, she's a single mother. And Joseph married her, adopted the child, and ended up with a fantastic family. 
Don't overlook the single mothers. And that single mother married, that's Jude's mom. That's his mom. In addition, James is his big brother. He's called in Acts and Galatians, a quote, pillar of the church. He's the one who helped invite the Gentiles, the non-Jews to worship Jesus. He wrote a book of the Bible as well. James and Jude are written by Jesus' two half-brothers. And at the end, they brought James up to a high place and they said, you deny that your brother is God, sinless and savior, or we're gonna throw you off this high point and you're gonna die. And guess what he, guess what he said? Throw me off. My brother's God. And basically Jude's attitude was, or excuse me, James's attitude was, if you kill me, I'll tell Jesus you said hi. <laughs> He's awaiting me on the other side. So they threw him off the temple and he didn't die. So then they approached him and they said, last chance, we're gonna stone you to death, throw rocks until you are dead. Deny that your brother is God. He didn't do it. Let me say this, people will lie for something that benefits them, but not for something that destroys them. Why would you tell a lie that destroys you? Because it's not a lie, it's the truth. And then there is another brother that was mentioned, we just read it in Matthew 13, Simon. History outside of the Bible says that when James died, there was a leadership vacuum in the early church. Guess who filled it? Simon. So we have Elizabeth, Zechariah, John the baptizer, James, Jude, and their brother, Simon, who steps into leadership. Mary and Joseph raised three strong, spirit-filled, fearless, sons who are half-brothers of Jesus. This is, an this is the most, let me just say this. This is the most significant, impactful, astonishing, exhilarating family in the history of the world. Jesus' family. And then there's Jude. Think about it as Jude. Jesus is your big brother. I mean, this is just rather amazing. Imagine sharing a bunk bed with Jesus. Imagine you're, you, you know, you're outside playing wiffle ball with Jesus. You're, you're jumping off the rope swing at the lake with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is his big brother. So when we get into the book of Jude, um, it's gonna get intense. You know why? He loves his brother and he hates people who lie about his brother. And, he, and, and he's angry at people who weaponize the words and the works of his brother. And, and he's, he knows who his brother is and he knows what his brother wants and he knows what his brother said. He doesn't want anyone to ruin the legacy of his brother. It's very personal for him. Well, howdy, it's Ashley Chase here, the Executive Director of Real Faith Ministries, which I get to run with my parents, Pastor Mark and Grace. If you want to be the first to receive exclusive content and updates from Real Faith and my parents' Bible teaching, you can text REAL to 99383. You'll get eBooks, sermons, videos, and more sent straight to your phone every week to keep you from sliding into heresy and apostasy. You're welcome. That's REAL to 99383. And if you're strengthened, encouraged, and built up by my parents' teaching, 
consider partnering with us at realfaith.com. Every dollar you give reaches 100 people with the gospel. And as our thanks to you, we'll send you an ebook of Pastor Mark's Systematic Theology, which is called Doctrine. It's all about Jesus. It's an incredible resource, whether you just met Jesus or you've known him for a long time, and we hope it answers some of your questions. Again, just give a gift at realfaith.com and we'll send you a copy. Let me talk now about you. So that's who Jude is. Talk about you. Believers are beloved. Jude 1 and 2. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's you. If you're a Christian, that's us. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Oh, we're at the ninth hole. I mean, okay. Let me just read it again. Okay. Like, the dead in Christ will rise first. Apparently it's us, okay? So to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's good news, amen? Okay. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. If you belong to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you're in this significant category of the beloved. And he says that if you are a Christian, it's because God has called you. Here's what I want you to know. Before you knew God, God knew you. Before you were searching for God, God was searching for you. Before you were calling out to God, God was calling out to you. And he decided, I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna adopt you and I'm gonna help you and I'm gonna forgive you. and, 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 And you know what? I'm gonna have a relationship with you. And he did that not because we're good, but because he's good. And, and he did that not because we've earned it, but because Jesus Christ earned it for us. You're, you're called. In addition, you are beloved. Um, this is a word that is used throughout the New Testament for God's people, God's children. It's like a father or a grandfather's heart toward the kids. And what really struck me this week, I was meditating on this word, and then I got the call that our first grandchild, a baby boy, was born. We got a a wedding in September, and then another baby coming, another grandson. And so I'll just be honest with you, I'm pretty emotional lately, like like period-level emotional. That's where I am. It's... I, I am. My wife's laughing because she's been there. She's like, are you crying again? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm crying at commercials. <laughs> you know, like DeWalt Tool commercials, but I'm still crying. Um, <laughs> no, you know, like I'm crying all the time. I'm super emotional. And, and my, my, my dear sweet wife, she's like, what's wrong? I was like, nothing, everything's right. Like everyone and everything in my life is blessed. This is the best season of my whole life. I love my wife, I love my church, I love my ministry. Um, I ignore people on the internet. I'm so happy, (laughs) I'm so happy. And so for me, I just, I feel so, how many of you, you've had moments where you just feel so loved that it's kind of overwhelming. And I was thinking about this when I was holding, my uh, grandson this week, and it was interesting because when his dad was born, our firstborn son, I, I, I prayed over my son and I, and I knew that he was going to have a son as his first child. 
So the first time I prayed for my grandson that I met this week was like 23 years ago when I held his dad and I prayed for his dad and I prayed for him. I knew that he was coming and I've been waiting 23 years to meet him. And so as I held him and I prayed for him and I prayed for his dad, who's my son, this word came to mind. Beloved is the combination of two words, be loved. And as I was holding my grandson, I thought, you know why he's here? He's here to be loved. That's why he's here. He didn't do anything. He didn't earn it. Didn't ask for it. Hadn't really accomplished anything. I mean, filled a diaper, I was proud of him. But other than that, not a lot on his resume. And guess what? I just love him. That's the father's heart toward you. He can't love you anymore. He won't love you any less. The reason that he called you is so that you could be loved and you're beloved. I want, I want the spirit of God to just let your soul soak in that. Once you know you're loved, it changes how you live. He goes on to say that you're kept by God. And some of you are here and you've rebelled and you've strayed and you've wandered and you've been prodigals. You're like, oh my gosh, I, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Why, ah, I regret that. Oh man, I hope I don't get struck with lightning coming into church. You know, and, 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 and you, you know you weren't living. Question is, God, how do you feel about me? Answer is, beloved. And the story of the prodigal is that, that the father runs to the child and embraces them and lavishly blesses them. That's the father's heart toward you. And he has kept you. He has kept you. I know that some of you have been running, but if you turn around, he's been chasing. You've not gotten far. And sometimes people who have had seasons of rebellion or folly or prodigal, they will ask this question, have I lost my salvation? And sometimes people will ask it in another way. Can a Christian lose their salvation? That's the wrong question. The question is, can God lose a Christian? Another way to say it is, will the father disown a child? If I didn't save myself, I can't unsave myself. If I didn't call myself, I can't uncall myself. If I didn't love myself, I can't unlove myself. The truth is this, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Right? And receive this rebel, not even you. You could say, God, I rejected you. And he's like, good thing I didn't reject you. Salvation is something that God starts and he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it through to completion. In addition, not only are you kept, you are recipients of. It's like when you get adopted into a family, you get all these blessings, ever multiplying mercy from God, peace with God, and love to share with others, starting with fellow believers. And I like to say that God works for you and in you and through you. That Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God, took your place, and then he put the Holy Spirit in you to give you new nature, new desires, new power, new identity, new affections and new devotions. And then he works through you. 
And now that love, you get to love people. And that mercy, you get to give them mercy. And that, that peace that you have, it allows peace in your relationships. Because this relationship changes all the relationships. And it's this promise of this sweetness and newness of life. Now, that being said, the people, when they originally received the book of Jude, they would have gathered together as a church like you. And they would have been told, hey, Jude wrote a letter and uh, we need to get together so that it can be read. So that's how it worked in the New Testament. An apostolic leader would write a letter to a local church. The senior leader, probably the senior pastor would say, okay, everybody, we got a letter from Jude. Let's hear what he has to say. So they would have sat there as you sit there. This is why the Bible needs to be the protein in the diet for the church service. Worship is great, prayer is great, hanging out is great, communion is great. The protein in the diet is the word of God, okay? The Bible says that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. They need, you know, and, and your sheep, you need protein. And at the end of the day, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And Paul says to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. All that to say that central to the gathering of God's worshiping family is hearing the word of God. And let me, let me say this, this is why I tend to go through books of the Bible. And also uh, this is why literally I will hold the word of God above you and me. You know why? It's in authority over all of us. That's what we believe. So we believe. So they would have gotten together and they would have heard this book of the Bible read from beginning to end. And as you read it and study it, and I would encourage you to, I've got a study guide. You can grab a free copy on the way out in the store at realfaith.com. It's there as well. I do, do all my own work. I'm trying to help you learn God's word. But I want you to read it and study it for yourself. It's the third shortest book in the New Testament. Second and third John are the shortest. Jude is the third shortest. You can read it in five to 10 minutes. Okay? So read it every day. And it, and, it, and it worked, people are like, what'd you do today? You just tell them, I got up early, I read a whole book of the Bible, whole book. I do it every day. Don't tell them it's Jude, you know, but they'll think it was Leviticus and your varsity, you're not. So, um, but as you read it, keep these categories in mind. The people sitting as you are sitting, or perhaps they were standing, as they heard Jude read to them, there would have been three groups of people that were being spoken to. And then the key is you read Jude is to ask, which category am I? There's three kinds of people in Jude, wise, foolish, and evil. Let me explain this to you. Some of you are familiar with this. So wise people live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Foolish people live by the power of their sinful flesh. Evil people live by the power of Satan and demons. Jesus says that you need to be discerning that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And so when he writes, those who are wise and live by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, they are more mature Christians and they're like shepherds who are looking after the new Christians and the struggling Christians. Those who are more foolish and they're living in their sinful flesh, they are like sheep. 
They're a little vulnerable. They're a little gullible. They need a little tending to and protecting. Those who are evil and live by the power of demonic and satanic forces, they are wolves. And so the tone will be very different for the shepherds versus the sheep versus the wolves. One of the dumbest things we tell people is to treat everybody the same. We treat people depending upon their character. If you're wise and filled with the Holy Spirit and love Jesus, you can come to my house. If you're an evildoer who likes to harm women and children, I will not open the door to my family. You treat different people differently and they determine how you treat them by their behavior. Let's go down a rabbit trail. We live in a culture that's like, you shouldn't discriminate. Of course you should. We don't let people drink and drive and the alcoholics feel very singled out. <laughs> Good luck trying to smoke in a hospital. You're like, you're so intolerant. Yeah, go outside with the nurses. We don't do that in here. So, anyways, I thought it was funny. So those who are wise and live by the spirit and are like shepherds, here's what it says in Jude. Four times they're called the beloved. They are kept for Jesus Christ. Four times it says that they receive mercy and peace and love from God. It says they quote, have the Holy Spirit and eternal life. Those who are foolish, and let me say this, some of you are immature, some of you are brand new Christians. You're brand new. Some of you, you're like, I, look, I, I don't know, man. I, I got a Bible in pants. That's how far I made it. I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, that's, that's how far I got. Well, thank you for putting your pants on and coming to church with your Bible. We're really excited to have you. Okay? And some people are brand new Christians and they're like, I don't know, man, I'm just learning. Some people are immature Christians. You've known a lot, but you've not obeyed a lot. And you don't grow by what you know, you grow by what you obey. And when he's talking to those who are immature Christians or sheep, he says, quote, have mercy on those who doubt. Some of you are struggling with big issues and questions. Goes on to say, save others by snatching them out of the fire and others show mercy without fear. For those who are new Christians or struggling or immature or in a hard season or life is cratered and they are struggling, he's like, love them help them, pick them up, serve them. Do the best you can to love those people well. That third category, those who live by the demonic, those who are the wolves. You're gonna, I'll read to you in a moment what he says regarding these people. But let me give you a word. This is a significant word. Don't forget it, apostate. These are people who are apostate, that third category of wolves. Apostates are not people who don't claim to be Christian, they claim to be Christian and they're anti-Christ. An apostate, apostasy is a word in the New Testament that is taken from war. So let's say for example, you're in the military and you're drilling and training with your squad or platoon or whatever the case may be. And then the day of battle comes and it's time to contend to use that language of Jude 3. It's time for the collision and the battle. It's time for the hand-to-hand -hand combat. So you march out with your platoon or squadron, and as soon as you get to the front line and you can see the enemy approaching, the person next to you runs into the battle. 
and they don't attack them. They welcome them. And that person turns around and they start attacking you and they're fighting for the other side. That's an apostate. It's treason. The patron saint of the apostates is Judas Iscariot. He hung out with Jesus for three years. Everybody thought he was a believer, a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus, and he was an enemy of Jesus. That's an apostate. The church in every generation has apostates and apostasy. Today, it is epidemic and it is global. It is like an avalanche that has taken over the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what apostasy looks like in our day. This is exactly how you know who the apostates are. I told you, it's the cross versus the rainbow. The rainbow cross is the enemy's team and camp. If you're watching online and this is the symbol of your church, run for your life. Find a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, prophet-preaching church. And where you are at is enemy territory. Here are some of the marks of apostasy in Jude. Ungodly in belief and or behavior. They're just ungodly. They are proud. They boast about their superiority and they attack leaders, especially Bible teachers, and they will seek to highlight any minimal error while overlooking their own hypocrisy. Number three, they are immoral. They celebrate bad behavior, especially sexuality, especially online, especially on social media. Number four, they are greedy. They profit off of their evil and bearing false witness against godly leaders. They get clicks and platforms and the mainstream media loves apostates. Here, there's some Christians and, and here's what they think. Well, that's not what God thinks. They're rebellious. They despise authority, both heavenly and earthly. And they are divisive. They create conflicts and factions and divisions. Let me say this. Apostasy is satanic and demonic. How do I know? Satan was the first apostate. In heaven, there was God and the angels before he created men and women. The storyline of the Bible is there was complete and total unity until Satan, one of the angels, determined that he would declare war on God. He wanted to sit on that throne and he wanted to be surrounded by that rainbow. And so Revelation 12, seven through nine says that a great war erupted in heaven and that Satan, an angel, became a demon and he led an apostasy. He recruited a third of the heavenly host, the Bible says. Those angels became demons and they turned and they stopped fighting for the Lord and they started fighting against the Lord. And there was a great war. And so they lost that war and they were cast down. Apostasy is not a ministry. There are people today that say that they are Christians and they believe that their apostasy is their ministry. It is not a ministry. It is a satanic, treasonous declaration of war on Jesus Christ. That's what it is. 
Hence Jude's strong language. Today, we would call it wokeism. And those on the progressive left would say um, to those who are more conservative, uh, you can't even define what woke means. Well, it's because it's not just an ideology, it's an individual. It's not just a philosophy, it's powers and principalities. There is a demonic force at work, not just in the world, but in the culture that is anti-Christ. And some would even say, but I'm a Christian. I'm just a Christian who's anti-Christ. Apostasy comes in two forms. There's hard apostasy that is overt and soft apostasy that is covert. Let me show you what hard apostasy looks like. I'll give you some examples. The United Methodist Church recently voted as a denomination to officiate same-sex marriages in their churches to support transgender LGBTQIA alphabet soup clergy and they are flying rainbow flags in their churches. As a result, 20% of the churches left. And I would say to those pastors and churches, God bless you. Because you did not leave the denomination. The denomination left God. The denomination left God. And if the denomination leaves God, you have to leave the denomination. Pray for those pastors and churches. But my question is, why is there still 80%? That means that four out of five Methodists is an apostate. Now there may be some true believers in those churches, but they're very confused. Here's another example of hard apostasy, the United Church of Christ. And this is where the deception is so diabolical. If you're a new Christian, you're like, I wanna find a church. I'm gonna go to that one, because they're about Christ. It's a church about Christ. They recently voted at their annual meeting to endorse abortion as care, to encourage their churches to be sanctuary centers for abortion and tithe dollars to be used to fund abortion. And this is the vote, 607 to 24. And 13 couldn't make up their mind. We need to drug test 13 people. That's crazy. That means the whole denomination is an abomination. Some of you feel that I'm judging. I am. In addition, one more hard apostasy example. So on iTunes, there's different categories of music. One is Christian worship music. This week, the number one song was by a drag queen artist named Flamey Grant. Okay, let's give you a moment to throw up in your mouth and then we'll proceed. If you're an older Christian, or as I would say, seasoned and mature, um, early days of Christian music, there was an artist named Amy Grant. This is a drag queen artist that previously led worship in a church for 22 years. They did a collaboration with a 10 time Grammy award nominated Christian artist. And that song went number one this week on the Christian charts for worship. Soft apostasy. 
Soft apostasy happens in churches, and I love pastors in churches, but it happens in churches where they will tell you what they're for, but not what they're against. We're for love and forgiveness and mercy and generosity. Okay, great. What do you think about abortion? Oh, you know, that's political. No, that's, that's life and death. Like, you know, it, it was in Exodus that the government tried to kill all the boys. It was in Herod's Roman Empire they tried to kill all the boys. When the government's trying to kill the kids, it's, it's not political, it's biblical. It's biblical. They're like, they're like we're for marriage. Okay, well, who, what kind of marriage? Like, oh, we, we, don't, we don't wanna judge. Well, you need to contend, which means you don't pick the fight, but when the fight comes, you fight. So to be a Christian is not to just be for, but to be against. See, I'm for life, so I'm against abortion. I'm for life, so I'm against murder. I'm for truth, so I'm against lies. I'm for the Holy Spirit, so I'm against unholy spirits. I'm for God, so I'm against Satan. I'm for children, so I'm against genital mutilation of healthy children. I'm for parental rights, so I'm against governments that steal children to castrate them. And in most churches, I would get fired on Monday for what I just said. Because, not this one. Uh, what? No. You guys will send me love letters. You're my people. All right, this is my hometown crowd. Pastors all the time, they'll, they'll, they'll write in, they're like, I can't believe you said that. I was like, I, I can't believe you didn't. If you're gonna open the word of God, you need to be prophetic. You are not allowed to be pathetic. That's it. So, I told you it's gonna get intense. All right, so, uh, so what I'm gonna do in a moment, I'm gonna read everything he says about apostates. I'm gonna read it. A couple things by way of preface. Number one, it's a senior leader not just some 22-year-old guy on Twitter in his mom's basement who has decided that he is the arbiter of, of truth on the earth, okay? Like, if your mom's still paying for your internet, the only thing you should post online is an apology for your life. That's all you should post, okay? Number two, he's going to attack ideas, but not individuals. He doesn't name people in the book. Very rarely in the New Testament does it name an apostate. Hymenaeus and Alexander with the Apostle Paul are one exception. The only time that I will name apostates is two, two times. One, if they're so popular that it's like a cult is emerging out of Christianity, and or it's someone who was a leader or a pastor in our local church that people trusted and they've gone apostate. If it's not your church, it's not your fight. And I've got in the book, 11 warnings before he studied Jude. But let me just read it to you. Take a deep breath. This is not the uplifting verse of the day. This is not the safe for the whole family. Scripture reading. I'll just read Jude unedited about the apostates. Certain people have crept in unnoticed 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Goes on to say they will be quote, destroyed because quote, they did not believe. It then says that they will inherit, quote, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. It goes on to speak of their sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, a punishment of eternal fire. These people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These people blaspheme and they will be quote, destroyed. They are quote, unreasoning animals. Woe to them, which is a curse, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. These are blemishes as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, the fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It talks about their judgment. And then it says they are, quote, ungodly, deeds of ungodliness, their ungodly way, ungodly sinners who say and do, quote, harsh things. These are grumblers, malcontents. That's the Greek word for bloggers and discernment pajama jihadists following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Scoffers following their ungodly passions. They cause divisions. These are worldly people devoid of the spirit. And if you're triggered, you're guilty. Not everybody's going to heaven. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. God will not be mocked. Everyone will reap what they sow. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me just speak to those who are apostates briefly. My primary head-on collision for 30 years has been apostates. Apostates, those who say they are Christian, but in their beliefs and behavior, it ends up being antichrist. First and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. People are like, you know, that's hate speech. No, that's gospel speech. That's not loving, that's the gospel. The gospel offends you and then it saves you. But you need to know that you're a sinner to know you need a savior. You need to know what your problem is before you know who the solution is. You need to know what's wrong with you so that Jesus can make it right. And the, the gospel is an offense. Everybody that I liked died early for what they said. So, and sometimes, hear me in this. People are like, I can't believe your pastor is so controversial. I can't believe all pastors aren't controversial. Like just read Romans 1 in public and wear a helmet and a cup when you do because it's not going to be well received. It's an offense and we're to contend. That means there's gonna be conflict. For those of you who are apostates, I'll just say this. Some of you are very proud. That's your problem. Knowledge puffs up. You think you're very smart. You come to the Bible and you're like, you know, it's close, but just with a few edits, I think I can get this right. 
Some of you, you have sin in your own life. You're like, you know, I don't wanna do everything the Bible says. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a creative way to argue against. And let me say, usually it's your pants. Most people are like, I have a lot of philosophical objections. No, you don't. You don't, you're, you don't have mental issues, you have belt issues. That's your problem. You just wanna have sex with whomever, whatever. And the Bible says no, so you're gonna find a way to do origami and make it say what you want it to say. Some of you, it's not just your sin, it's their sin. You love your kid and they're apostate. You love your grandkid or your friend and they're apostate. You're like, I just can't say that they're wrong. No, here, let me tell you this. If you really love someone, you want them to live under the word of God and experience the blessing of God on their life. And so by telling them, hey, you're living in rebellion against God. You're, you've picked a fight with God. Nobody's ever won that fight. You know, you, you need to repent of your sin and submit to the word of God and then God will heal you and bless you. Some of your struggle is you have fear of man instead of fear of the Lord. You're like, well, what will they say? I don't care, what is he gonna say? Well, what do they think? I don't care, what does he think? See, when all is said and done, we're gonna stand before Jesus and what he says is all that's gonna matter forever. And some of you have church hurt. Some of you are apostates because you have church hurt. And let me say this, those who have church hurt and then attack the church are the biggest hypocrites on earth in our generation. Because those people that say they've been hurt by the church and then make it their life's mission to hurt the church, they are guilty of the greatest church hurt. How do I know this? I'm a pastor. Nobody gets attacked like the pastor and nobody gets attacked like the pastor's family. Ministry is the only war where the soldiers take their wives and kids to the front lines of the battle. When you attack the pastor, you attack the flock. See, God wrote the scripture, but Satan knows it. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. You're like, I got hurt, so I'm gonna attack all the churches and all the pastors. Great, then you're gonna scatter all the flocks and they've got wives and kids. This is why the most powerful and the most influential deconstructionist apostates in our generation are pastors and pastor's kids who have suffered church hurt and chosen bitterness over forgiveness. Uh, I'm over time. Uh, let me just tell you a quick story. You got, you got a minute? Uh, um, so um, let me tell you about my heroes. My heroes are Grace and my five kids. My wife was born into a ministry family. Her daddy was a pastor. She saw her dad and mom get attacked and lied about her entire life. And they couldn't say anything because that would be gossip. And, uh, and then she married me and it didn't get better. <laughs> and then we had five kids and my five kids have been attacked over and over and over, starting at a young age, even as minors. Um, some of it is, some of it's because some of what I've, some of what is said about me is true, some is false, and a lot is kind of true and kind of false. Um, but the kind of hurt that my children have endured is really astonishing. Um, about a year or two ago, uh, there was a major news outlet, I won't mention it, was doing a hit piece on me and they'd written an article um, quoting a bunch of apostates saying that my wife, Grace, and I were pro-rape. <laughs> pro-rape, me and my wife. 
So they called our child, I won't name which one, to fact check. Yeah, we're just called, yeah, we've written the story, we're getting ready to push, you know, the live button, and we just want to confirm that your mom and dad are pro-rape. Like, what child has to deal with that? Like, I run a ministry called Real Men where we build men up to bless women and children. This couldn't be more clear. My children have appeared in news articles. They have been lied about. They have been slandered. They have been attacked on media and social media. And they're not apostate, and neither is my wife. And we love the church. We don't hate the church. And we know that sometimes people in the church are just sinners and they make mistakes. And other times there's wolves in the flock and they do a lot of damage and harm. My family has chosen to forgive and to love and to serve. The result is we have something called Trinity Church. That's why we have Trinity Church. So we wanna be a life-giving, joyful, grace-filled church family that, that does contend so that we can protect the family and love one another well. Some of you need to forgive leaders, maybe your own parents, your upbringing, your church. Don't become an apostate, become a Christian. I'm gonna invite the band up at this time and I just wanna close with this. I'm gonna make this my closing prayer and it's just reading over you as God's people, the word of God and what God says about you and how God feels toward you. And I want you just to receive this and then we're gonna worship our God together. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time or in the last days, there will be scoffers and they're online right now following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, but you beloved, <laughs> but you beloved, but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear. Now to him, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.